This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers show number 27, recorded on December 29th, 2015. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in a beautiful Bellevue, Nebraska. Oh, it's super cold. And we post this show with world-class show notes each week out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, of course, you can contact the show. Send us an email, Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can track me down on Twitter at jcollison. Now you can calling those questions, although it's just as easy since we're in Blab tonight. If you're listening live, head over to the chat room, drop those questions in chat, and we'll be monitoring the chat room while we're over there. If you want to call those in, you can do it as well, 402-478-8450. I'll be watching the voicemail during the live show if you want to call those in, or afterwards, we can play those on the next. Maybe that'll motivate us to get the next Cyber Frontiers a little bit sooner than five months apart. The Average TV is powered by Maple Grove Partners, web hosting, it's secure, reliable, high speed hosting for people you know and you trust. That's just Christian. Bottom down there in the bottom screen down there, Christian runs that. Get uh, get it all secure, reliable, high speed hosting for people you know. For more information, of course, contact Maple Grove Partners. Plans start at 10 bucks, super cheap. Great podcasting plans actually for 10 bucks out at Maple Grove partners.com and now cyber frontiers is a part of the geeks network find the link to this show and many other great podcasts out at the geeks network.com all right so joining me tonight from his undisclosed location somewhere in western new york i believe uh, might not even be snowed in at this point christian welcome to uh, cyber frontiers thanks i've had the pleasure of experiencing first christmas in quite some time with no snow whatsoever uh been very dry for the most part we actually had our first snow yesterday it was like two inches nothing serious mostly gone though we have more snow than you do right now yeah yeah so about eight inches on the ground here so it's right a little weird to be thinking that buffalo does not i disclosed the location (laughs) <laughs> does not have does not have that but uh home on break and uh and christian you invited jeremy why don't you take a second and introduce jeremy to the podcast yeah so uh jeremy's been with the aces honors program uh the cybersecurity program at the university of maryland with me since freshman year uh he is a residential expert on things cyber and computer science and uh has been my close colleague and friend on campus since uh starting my journey there so happy to have him on the show tonight yeah it's great to be on Great to have you, Jeremy. Christian, we were just saying in pre-show, about five months between now and the last time we did a Cyber Frontiers. It's been a busy fall. We had a lot going on. Give us a quick two-minute update on what went on this fall and, and why we never got a Cyber Frontiers out. Sure. So one of the mutually shared things between Jeremy and I is we were both tasked with writing a compiler uh, this semester for essentially the Ruby programming language. Uh, and it was a pretty significant undertaking. Uh, a lot of our time was spent writing uh, bytecode, uh, compilers, and so forth. So a lot of our times went to 400 level electives this semester. Um, work was exceedingly busy, and uh, just the combination of snowballs just kind of made it hard to get things off the ground. But um, the the good thing from that is that in theory, after that four month retreat, um, we hopefully learn things that are very valuable going forward. So it should hopefully make for more premium content around the technology things you want to know about. No, very good. Maybe it's a backed up content. I think we'll talk a little bit about tonight. Jeremy, we were also talking about internships before Mike Weger asked the question uh, out in chat. He said, do a lot of Maryland students head to the Valley for summer internships? What do, what do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. So I know a couple of our roommates on our floor and uh, people in the program, ACES program, that is, have all like we have a handful going out um, to Silicon Valley this summer. I know of uh, three of us off the top of my head, but um, I'm sure there are others and there have been in the past. Yeah, and I've I lost one of ours to our friends at Google. <laughs> who, uh, Colin is making his way out to uh, to the Bay Area. I think he'll be south of you. Down, are you guys planning when you're down there to to kind of do some meetups, uh, some maybe some Maryland meetups while you're down? Do, do you know Colin very well? Uh, yeah, I know Colin. Um, we actually did a research project this uh, semester for one of our classes together. But um, yeah, we're looking to do a couple college meetups. I know um, uh, our our roommates actually are going to be like a couple blocks from me this summer, so we'll definitely be catching up 
throughout the summer. The the invasion of uh, the Maryland students. I I am actually going to try and meet up with you guys as well. I'll be out in July, which is really scary. I'll be out in July for well. First, I'm going to buy you a new keyboard. Is what I'm going to do when I get out there in July. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna be out in July for my high school 30th anniversary uh, reunion, and so that's out in the Bay Area. So I'm gonna try. We should pl- try and plan one of those meetups, definitely, uh, and get together. It'd be re- really weird to see out there. That would be. I'm always yeah. used to seeing you in Maryland, right? Uh, to see you. The big meetup for my our suite this summer is doing DefCon, because um, that's got to be like the one summer where all of us could actually go and would be legally eligible to participate in all activities associated with DEFCON. So when is that? Do you know what uh, month that's in? I think it's August. August. Yeah. It's usually the first few weeks of August. Some point. Averageguy.tv sponsored event for, for DEFCON with yeah. Cyber Frontiers as the headliner. That would be yeah. That would be cool. Well it's good to have you guys. Uh Jeremy, welcome. It's good to have yeah, you, Christian. You. Good to have you back. Uh we've got a whole list of notes to start digging in. Christian, where do you want to start? Um, I think we're actually going to start with wrapping up some of the 2015 stuff. So there are some end of the year hack challenges going on and there were some end of the year kind of cybersecurity things that happened in a flash while you were busy unwrapping Christmas presents. So I'm going to let Jeremy start there. Yeah. So I guess the first thing, uh, we actually just had a question in the chat room about some super gnomes. So for those of you wondering, there's currently a holiday hack challenge going on uh, run by the SANS Institute. Um, so I can, I can pull up the link, I guess, and put that in the chat if people want to check it out. Um, but this is essentially every year the people at SANS put together a holiday hack challenge, they call it. It's usually Christmas themed, uh, of some sort, and they provide a storyline as well as some, uh, techie, hacky type challenges for people to do. Um, so this year the theme was, uh, Gnome in Your Home. Um, which might be might sound familiar, maybe not. Um, but essentially, it's about the Internet of Things, right? So people are purchasing these gnomes to put in their houses, and one family is a bit suspicious of what the gnomes are actually doing. So they decide to start taking it apart and kind of unraveling the mystery of what the gnomes are actually doing. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's a lot of fun. Um, it's run by a great group, the Sands Institute. So I, I recommend people check it out. Jeremy, have you been? Uh, we we had um, we were talking on uh, one of the podcasts that I do, Silicon Prairie News Minute, about Bitcoin, and that Bitcoin has some new um, some new endpoints that the the average consumer can buy. They're like 140 bucks each. Christian, I don't know if either of you are aware of this, where you don't mine for the bitcoins there, but they help host the kind of the network. I guess there's about 5,000 mm-hmm. nodes on the Bitcoin network. Have either one of you seen any of that any of that information around uh, around those endpoints as far as Bitcoin goes? Nope, that's a new one. No, yeah, I haven't been let it go. Maybe Bitcoin. maybe a little. It's worth. It was interesting because you know, uh, from my standpoint, when we think about security, they want more nodes, right, to get to 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 help process those, and so they've come up with these. You can buy them. You have the only drawback you have to buy them with Bitcoin. You, so it's like one hundred forty dollars. <laughs> like. 0.317 Bitcoin to, to right. buy these, but you would put them in your home network and they would, you would, I imagine you have to register them, get them set up and, and stuff like that, but they would host the Bitcoin. I was, I was wondering of, what the connection was between gnomes and Bitcoin endpoints. <laughs> yeah. Well, when he said that, I was like, so is this kind of a, you know, is this kind of a, tr- do, do we see this as kind of a trend on some of these distributed environments where, you know, even Bitcoin is now trying to get trying to distribute its endpoints out and get a, get a crowd-based solution. And how secure is that to sell a piece of equipment that maybe the average consumer is going to pick up and maybe not the average consumer, but someone who could probably hack that thing. Is there, would there be any concerns there? Maybe we don't know, but I'll throw that out there. Yeah. I mean, I think at least with Bitcoin, it's less, it's not your traditional IP device in the sense that you're trying to decentralize the traffic and keep it, encrypted and have the transactions be a record. So in that sense, the more people that adopt that model, actually the more secure, some would argue, the internet becomes. Um, but in a isolated sense like that, it you'd have to look at how the IP technology, if anything, interacts with your existing devices and network and whether or not it's exposing any endpoints. But I would argue actually that it wouldn't be nearly as much of a security concern as what some of these gnome-like Internet of Thing devices are going to be doing on your network. 
Yeah, it's it's a little dainty. You know, these I was I was going to ask you guys this question. Maybe we'll save it till later. Which is, I mean, how I, we we're plugging in all these devices now, and I think 2016 is the year of the Internet of Things when it comes to getting in the average consumer in their home. You know, the Amazon Echo is kind of the gateway drug for going to be for a lot of consumers to then add things to that. Do these endpoints cause a security concern from your standpoint? These Hue lights, these you know, these Wemo remotes, that kind of stuff. Do, do, are, are there concerns and security concerns, much like we see with our cell phones where people used to be really concerned about PCs, but I don't know if the average consumer even cares that their phone is probably more hackable than their PC ever was. Yeah, I mean, some of what we're going to talk about tonight too is whether or not the consumer is willing to pay for enhanced Internet of Things security devices. But the big thing with the home devices is that a lot of the embedded firmwares that are on those devices are very simplistic, which means one of two things. Either they're very secure or they're very insecure. Um, and so it's kind of like a coin toss. And, uh, you know, once that firmware has an IP, um, anything is really fair game. And so, uh, yeah, I definitely expect increased vulnerabilities. It definitely fits my definition of is it increasing or decreasing the attack surface. This is a major increase. Um, and one of the reports that we're going to discuss too, we're at 6.8 billion devices in 2016, which means that for every person on the planet, there's about between two and three devices for that person. And by 2020, I think that's going to be over 20 billion based on current population and technology projections. So essentially, this uh, the the attack service is following an exponential growth um, and the Internet of Things is obviously powering that and whether or not the firmwares are going to be secure or insecure and whether or not consumers really care. Right. Um, you know, if the firmware is just turning a light on or off, maybe you don't care if someone gets access to that and they're messing with your lights. You'll be like, OK, if someone really wants to mess with my garage light and then it gets frustrating. Yeah, I'll do something about it. But it's not like they emptied out my bank account and now I'm SOL. Um, whereas there might be some other devices that you'd be a little bit more like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, imagine if your heater, maybe it controls your gas line or some other thing and someone's cranking your heater as high as possible. Maybe that's a fire hazard. I don't know. Um, I think one of the more interesting examples at a university that we will not disclose um, had some Internet of Things devices in their kitchen and uh, someone figured out how to turn on all the burners in the building. So, I mean, these are the types of things that sound wildly bizarre, but are very within reach um, and not just for the consumer. Right. I think the uh, industry is feeling the pain of Internet of Things, but. Uh, kind of in a very legacy fashion, and that's with the industrial control systems. And those are going to be one of the biggest targets in 2016 when we look at how does uh, cyber espionage take place and how do you um, maximize damage to a nation state or to a company? Uh, it's through industrial control systems. And that's kind of going to be one of the biggest areas of focus, I think, for how do we shore up security weaknesses uh, coming up in 2016. All right. I'll leave you to it. Keep going. All right. Uh, so this is a I'm going to actually start with, you know, what are some of the threats that are, I think, the biggest things that we're going to see in 2016? That's a shift from 2015. Um, I would say if it was one of the biggest talking points that showed up in 2015, it was this notion of advanced persistent threats. And how are we sharing that information? Um, how are companies leveraging that to be part of their security solution? Um, and we're seeing some of the, um, I guess, uh, offshoots of that through the legislation that was passed over the holidays, the Cybersecurity Act of 2015, um, specifically, which has those provisions about um, the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act and uh, companies kind of working together on that. So we're actually, we saw that get implemented in 2015. Um, but what are those advanced persistent threats? They're they're more black and white than what we're going to start to see in 2016. You know, it's either this IP is a threat or it's not. This service is vulnerable or it's not. This site was taken down to a DDoS attack or it wasn't. This information was stolen or it wasn't. Now we're getting into much more uh, fine grain issues in, in security. And that's going to be one of the biggest things in 2016 is data integrity in large scale systems. So as we start to become more dependent on 
large scale cloud systems that are powering, you know, the billions of mobile devices that make up the Internet of Things. Um, we're looking at a real issue because now that there is so much information saturated in these cloud systems, it becomes very difficult to say with 100% certainty, is the data that's being stored in our databases, is that the data that is supposed to be there or was it manipulated? So now rather than taking down a whole database or doing a DDoS attack, the the kind of the 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 2016 challenge is can you prove that all the data in your data warehouse is the data that you put there um, because there's a lot of interesting stories coming out about how um, essentially cyber hackers are modifying small bits of information to have a strategic advantage for them right um, and there's cases where this is actually a real issue in the medical industry where they're doing drug trials and you want to know you know, the FDA wants to know, is this drug trial feasible? Well, obviously, for a company, they're going to want to show all the data points and, and, you know, test data that they did to say, yes, this drug is fine. But maybe their competitors or, you know, overseas competitors are going to want to sabotage that, right? So if they make small changes to the data that no one is aware of, and then the FDA goes in to inspect that data, and it's not what the company is thinking it is, Who's, how are they going to validate that? Oh, this was changed and this isn't what we actually did. Um, so one of the biggest tool evolutions uh, that I think are going to come up is going to be what tools and resources can we use to say with certainty, A, has data been modified since a certain timestamp? B, was it modified by a legitimate source? And C, um, is that data... Um, I guess what its authors expect it to be or what its producer-consumer relationship is that being maintained. Um, and there's a lot of interesting tool solutions that are going to be kind of part of that. I mean, when we think about traditional things like when a hard drive goes bad, how do we know a hard drive goes bad? Or how do we know that a piece of data gets corrupted on a hard drive? Well, the disk controller has a checksum and if that checksum is bad and doesn't hash correctly, you know that that bit of data is bad. So now... I think especially with as we're moving to the, the era of data and lots of it and the era of high-performance compute, I think we're going to start leveraging more of those compute resources to be doing these types of checksum calculating activities that can be relatively intensive when you're looking at that large silo of data. But I think it's going to be... Uh, there's going to have to be tools and development around that for cloud systems as this data ramps up and as the Internet of Things ramp up. Christian, that, that begs the question, right? I mean, so how do you, I mean, at some point, uh, the authentication, right? We have zero, this idea of zero trust coming in. I mean, if you're, if you're spoofing all things and you eventually can spoof the source changing the record, what, how do you really lock down? How do you create that, that source fingerprint, so to speak, to make sure that they are getting a true accurate record of, hey, this machine that's trusted is making the change or, or whatever. What does that look right. like? Do, do we have any ideas? Um, I mean, you know, the naive answer would be there's some type of signature validation that's taking place. But I'm relatively convinced that signatures are an outdated technology at this point, and we need to be moving smarter in that direction. Um, and so maybe one interesting thing uh at least from a research perspective, I have no idea if we're actually going in this direction, but um, the notion of decentralized uh, signatures where basically multiple machines have to corroborate that something is or isn't valid based on adding together all these different signatures. So basically each computer holds a portion of what we'll just say is some hash sum. And if any one of those machines is targeted and taken down, then obviously it won't hash to the right value um, and there, you know, in this theoretical model, there would only be one correct final value and all the sub bits are added together. So if any particular, um, vulnerability was found where you could figure out how to spoof the, you know, the signature bit, hopefully the implementation for those subcomponents would be different enough that it would only apply to spoofing one portion of the signature that you're trying to create. 
Um, and that's also really important for man in the middle attacks with the cloud now, right? We're seeing a lot of, we talked about this on an earlier show where essentially now you can spoof the cloud client itself to basically have, you know, your Dropbox talking to a fake server that's um, siphoning data. So these are the types of things where signature-based um, activities could be helpful if they were kind of decentralized and more distributed and the sums were being additive as opposed to kind of like a one-shot-all pony of yes or no. Um, and I really think in the in an era where multiple systems are controlling the same bit of data, you have to leverage that additional compute resource. I mean, it would be interesting if uh, statistics were published about for your average data center like Google or Dropbox or otherwise, what is the average percent CPU utilization across the platform, right? So essentially, how maximized are their system resources? And I think you would find that, you know, a lot of the CPUs that sit in these data cloud centers, they're not hitting their 100% CPU IO, right? So the challenge for security engineers, I think, is to figure out how to maximize those dead cycles into doing these useful things that protect the business and protect the um, information assurance value of the data, uh, whether that be commercial or corporate or otherwise. Is, is a percentage of a check good enough in the sense that it may not be able to do 100%? You know, when we think about distributed checksum, the compute power necessary to do that just may not exist, but it is doing a, uh, it is doing a um, sample check or it's, it's maybe doing 15% of the values to find discrepancies, and then it might dig deeper if it finds something. Is that a viable, a viable solution, or it, does it even work that way? Yeah, I mean, I think one interesting thing would be like, if you think of a, a traditional file system, for example, right, a lot of the things that are in cloud are in what's called like raw block storage or object storage. So that in that sense, it might not be as applicable. But think about what is your file system on a hard drive, really? It's it's almost like a it's a data structure. And the specific data structure is a tree where, you know, each, you could start at the root node, which is your hard drive, and, and go to the leaves. And there might be some type of heuristic you could follow, whether that's like a, a breadth-first search or depth-first search for saying, okay, I'm at the root node, which represents my entire file system. Has anything changed? If the answer is yes or no, then you keep drilling down to each you know, smaller node. And what you try and do is find a coverage of the largest amount of nodes that ends up um, being responsible for data being changed in one direction or another. And so that might minimize the amount of searching you have to do um, because you wouldn't necessarily have to run the actual, you know, whatever your algorithm is to say whether or not this data is valid or invalid, you wouldn't have to run that if you knew that, okay, the data hasn't been changed at this point and I have a timestamp from two weeks ago saying it was fine. And if this tree is saying that it hasn't changed since then and we see that the, you know, the integrity is the exact same, then we don't have to revisit it or rerun the algorithm. So you would have to take some kind of approach like that. But I think with those types of strategies, with the additive computing power that's in these cloud environments, you could get pretty good coverage, I would imagine, and you would be adding some type of security or value to the customer um, for doing that. And I think you're making some assumptions that you can can't spoof the timestamps because if you can sp if you can spoof those, it right. it kind of it kind of breaks the whole thing, right? Yeah, and that's the thing. The more assumptions you make, the more problematic the solution becomes so, so one of the one of the listeners will in china had asked uh can duplicate data sets be com, you know be compared i think that's a, a pretty simplistic approach to it but then in the chat they're like well which one is right you know when you think about that which data set is right and what makes you think that both sets didn't get if a hacker got you know was able to get in and manipulate one set they would probably be able to update the second set as well to to make the you know to make it match yeah, I mean, I think that's a valid point. Um, to be honest, I would, I don't know, Jeremy should probably weigh on in this because yeah. he has some ideas on it think, too. Jeremy? But uh, Yeah, so I guess I, I, it, it's important to take in into consideration the kind of data we're talking about, right? So if it's just static data that we're kind of storing and we don't ever want to change, then yeah, you, you can take like a, a hash of the data at the very beginning and then when you want to verify that it hasn't changed, you can check it. But if it's a very dynamic data set where you're having like maybe credit card transactions or something coming in and out all the time, um, 
the thing is going to be changing. And what you want to be able to do is make sure that the changes are like from a good source, right? Um, so, so I guess that's the key is yeah. making sure we can appropriately verify where the changes are coming from and making sure that they're good sources. Yeah. And that's the battle. Yeah. yeah that's and the battle. So in terms of kind of the, the, to summarize what that change is in 2016, um, one of the, uh, directors for national intelligence quoted in this article, uh, which thanks to Randy, one of our show listeners for pointing, pointing me to it on Twitter this week, uh, said that the biggest emerging threat to, uh, our national security is cyber operations that will change or manipulate electronic information in order to compromise its integrity instead of deleting or disrupting access to it. Um, so really, I mean, one of the biggest things too is, you know, let's say that scenario plays out where that data is manipulated. The even bigger challenge is let's say the disaster has happened. How do you do disaster recovery on a system that has had its data that played with, right? You have to really basically find where the origin is and can you recover any of the data from the origin that you determine as being kind of pure and not modified to uh, present time. And that has got to be a challenge that um, will will keep security engineers busy going into 2016 as this becomes a larger issue. So with that, um, there are <laughs> other emerging threats that are rather significant. Um, and one of the interesting reports that is out there um, that is actually really cool, I recommend everyone who's interested in this kind of uh, material go out and take a look at it. Uh, Georgia Tech uh, their Institute for Information Security and Privacy publishes a 2016 Emerging Cyber Threats Report. It's got a lot of cool facts and statistics in it that really kind of gives you an idea of where we're headed in the threat space and what some of the key issues are. And I'm just going to kind of go through some of their key findings and talk about how it's related to what we've been discussing. Um, one, the privacy tug of war between individuals and organizations has become a tug with no war. Today, individuals are forced to completely give up tremendous amounts of data in take it or leave it policies that make privacy loss the price of convenience. And I think we, we, we have predicted this on this show and not really predicted it. We've just watched it unfold, um, since the, since show number one, right? And I think we've gotten to a point where it's fair to say that, privacy advocates have lost the war of making terms of service um, have some provisions for people who are privacy hawks. Really, it's it's an all or nothing space. And the majority of people have opted for convenience instead of privacy. And when you're downloading those free apps and you're getting those free cell phone services, you're paying them with your data. And so data has definitely become a currency um, in more ways than one, which is something I've talked about uh, for a while, the concept that data is a currency now. It's not a matter of is it yours or is it mine? Obviously, this contrasts uh, significantly um, in Europe, where Europe is taking a very different approach to this. And they are now building dedicated stacks, you could call them. They're almost like router stacks that sit at the edge devices of the country. And they filter all of the cloud traffic that comes in or out. So now it's forcing the Microsofts, the Googles, the big cloud providers that you know take advantage of these privacy agreements as much as possible to say, give us all your data. Europe is putting a real solid stop to that, not by passive legislation, which ends up getting steamrolled, but by building these physical stacks of hardware um, that forces compliance with the providers, which is a, a really intriguing model because in the US we have none of that. Um, and Europe is really clamping down on that. We're seeing in the finance sector, uh, particularly, you know, in, in uh, federal bank and finance laws, um, where this type of information sharing becomes a real big issue. And there are a lot of differences in the US banking regulation laws and the European banking regulation laws and how that data gets shared. Um, it's, it's a very prevalent issue. And so the fact that Europe is investing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in this dedicated 
edge device infrastructure to start forcing compliance for kind of the Europe right to be forgotten laws, which are really at the crux of how they view privacy, uh, is very different from what we're doing in the US right now, which is basically saying that our data is our money. Um, and so that's been a very kind of interesting contrast. I think it's safe to say that most countries are still in the um, your data is our currency as opposed to your data is your protected right. Um, Europe stands apart in that. Christian, uh, it, it appears to me, though, when I contrast the United States to Europe, it seems like the government wants to be in control of the data in Europe and the businesses, the big business wants to be control of the data in the United States. I, I hear a lot more when we when you think about data uh, here in the U.S., I hear the big companies talking about it, right? And the U.S. government certainly has a say in it. But then when we when I hear from the EU, it's all government stuff. I don't hear any major European. Am I just biased to, the, to that just because of the news that I get? Or do you guys see a difference in the way the EU handles data and the way they try to protect it versus the way we handle it here in the United States? Either one of you. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let Jimmy answer this too, but it's definitely a stark difference. And I think the difference is not just in how they're managing these laws, but what is the scope, right? So the European government has a scope of what data it considers kind of valid or invalid to be managing as, you know, a, as far as a government agency is concerned. Um, and we have a very different notion of that in the US where it's much more about, well, you know, it's the company's privacy policies. And, you know, they have a lot of games for sheltering that data and keeping that data um, until the government, until our government wants access to it for a given reason. And then it gets even more, you know, kind of cloudy. So, but I definitely think they're contrasting views. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far. I would, I would agree with you that it's definitely, you know, I think the people who are having the largest voice in the conversation in the U.S. are the big companies versus in Europe, the biggest voice is the government. Um, it's unclear to me whether or not the actual outcome is different other than the fact that, you know, Europeans are clamping down and we're loosening up. Um, but I'll let Jeremy take a stab at that as well. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. It's a very different landscape in Europe. Um, I think something important to keep in mind is that you mentioned, Christian, that the government is kind of the voice for privacy in Europe. But I mean, it's important to think about what the government's doing with privacy in America too, I guess. Um, yeah, they're so not exactly <laughs> like they might not be advocates for privacy for certain reasons and certain prerogatives that they have that um, might be different. Right. Um, I, I, national security is definitely different thing than uh, over do, here. Do you see that changing, you know, with in the aftermath of, of disclosures in the last couple of years? Is that going back, Jeremy? Is that going back the way it was before, or have we passed a point of no return, and we're just never going to get back to the to the place where our our data is really private? Well, I think the I, I think the good thing is that now there's a dialogue, right? So now the government and uh, the citizens are kind of talking about it. it's been brought to our attention, and it's something that we can kind of have this conversation about and decide what's best for the citizens and for the country as a whole, um, what we need to protect ourselves and uh, what we're willing to sacrifice to do that. Christian, I'll use this question to kind of transition into your next, the exponential growth of the Internet of Things. I, I read an interesting article the other day where manufacturers like Caterpillar are beginning to embed very, you know, very, um, uh, you know, data gathering components in all of their tractors, right? And this isn't new. It's been going on, but they are they are collecting an enormous amount of data, and there's a battle between the the companies and the farmers now on who owns that data. Right, a right. farmer goes out, runs his land, and says, "I should that that should be my data." Right, and and Caterpillar says, "You know what? We put those sensors on there. We need that data from a, you know, it, it's very valuable." So you know, to go back to your currency comment, where the data becomes valuable, it's valuable to both parties. Neither one of them want to share it. But that, I, I think when we think about the Internet of Things and it going on to all these endpoints where it's beginning to gather this data, if I install a Hue light in my, in my home and it's starting to capture data about like temperature data or whatever, is that my data or does that belong to them? Right. right? I mean, who, who, who owns that stuff? Right. Is that so, a in the world of Internet of Things. And it's interesting, too, when you think about what data can be abstracted from that, right? So like a light turning on and off, you might think, oh, who cares, right? But then if it's a light in your home, well, maybe that tells someone what time's your home at night versus when you're out 
So um, that's when it starts to paint a very different picture. Um, I think one of the interesting things we also have to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, most people project that within the next 10 years, every inanimate object, so to speak, that is sold has some kind of chip in it, right? And the degree of what the data collection is or the connectivity is unclear by that statement. But what we're saying there is that there's some silicon in every single device, whether it's your sofa or your table. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, right? But essentially, more and more stuff in your home has a chip in it. So what does that actually mean? It means more and more data is being collected, like you're saying, different interests. But kind of think about how messed up that is from a physical standpoint, right? So like you enter your home, that's private property. But now you're saying that there are devices that can collect data about that private environment in a public way. And that's a very confusing statement because it makes zero sense in our traditional understanding of privacy or property rights, right? So now it's like, well, do companies have right to collect data on things that are in this private physical environment, but are in this public virtual environment? And the the legal precedent is blatantly outdated on this matter. And so there's going to be a lot of kind of wild west cowboyism as these technologies start to transition into the home. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, maybe we can sanitize or anonymize the data. But, you know, everyone loves those little metadata cookies that paint the big data analytic, you know, cyber, you know, we just keep adding words on the end. Um, but, you know, paints paints the pretty picture with the with the sprinkles on top. And I think that as companies start putting these devices in the home, I think some of the companies will get their fingers slapped, but I don't. I don't necessarily believe or know that consumers are going to be smart enough to figure it out before it's too late. And by the time it is too late, it's probably going to be up to legal precedent to reverse it. And at least in our country, based on the current gridlock that exists, the there are uh, dim hopes that people could actually come together on these types of issues in the near term, um, which you know kind of begs the question, what types of issues are we are we heading into and and who's willing to put these devices in their home right um you know i think privacy advocates who want the technology are going to be much more interested in do-it-yourself projects where they know what they're putting together than just buying something off the shelf and plugging it in and oh now it has an ip address and it's sending those anonymous statistics about your experience back to uh the big farm i mean i just think that Mm -hmm. that's going to become prevalent to the point where for some people who are not really aware of what's going on they're going to have zero control over it well when we think of a a device like the connect right the microsoft connect that is can be aware and can be sensing who's in the room and oftentimes discover who it is and call you out by name. Jeremy, does that bother you at all? That, I mean, it's been around a while, but to, to that, that juxtaposition between privacy and not, I mean, it's, you're not private, right? Cause it understands who you are. Definitely. No. Yeah. So that, and um, anonymity, however you want to say it, yeah, um, yeah. That, that's a big thing for me. So I don't have a connect. I don't plan on game one anytime soon. But um, yeah, th- that's something that definitely bugs me. Um, I don't know if I'd be comfortable putting uh, all these devices in my homes if they're collecting data about who I am and what I, who I am and what I do. Uh, a good point Christian mentioned is this whole do-it-yourself mentality, though. Um, so imagine I want to kind of work on a project myself. What what is to say that I'm going to do a better job with the security? I mean, they tell you never to roll your own crypto, right? Uh, so this is a similar mentality. What says I should be making my own uh, like lock, smart lock for my door? What if the software I write isn't secure enough um, and someone can end up breaking in or something like that? So I guess the do-it-yourself is definitely a good idea to prevent the data collection and privacy, but it also raises some important security questions, um, like who who is writing the software and are they capable of making it secure? Yeah, and I think that that also raises a good thing about like, it's a very mixed message when, you know, let's say companies promote big security for Internet of Things devices, right? And you're buying this device being like, oh, it's not going to get hacked, but it's like, well, what does that really mean? Does that mean it's just secure? It keeps everyone out except the company that produced that product or it keeps everyone out except for you. 
And I don't think that that's going to be clear in any of the branding that will show up on these devices. So Christian, with all these attack surfaces being, you know, getting larger, apparently, instead of smaller, certainly there's a rush of resources, right? I mean, people are running from their homes to go to school and learn this stuff, right? I mean, we're, that's the trend we're seeing, a upward trend in cybersecurity experts. Is that what's happening? Well, we've made efforts in that direction, but sadly, the reality from the re emerging report is that the digital economy is growing more complex while lack of highly trained security workers persists worldwide. So, um, you know, programs like the one that Jeremy and I went through in college uh, obviously are trying to take a stab at fixing that problem. But these are at very, I, I would say, the micro economy scale, right, where they're impacting local economies as it pertains to cybersecurity. Um, we're not seeing like you know, massive countrywide initiatives or some unified effort to, to raise the bar for cybersecurity capability and, and really for engineers. Um, and, th and that's kind of the issue, right? It's, it's one thing to train and educate smart users. It's another thing to train and educate security professionals. And uh, we're in, you know, large shortage of them throughout the world. And that is going to propel um, or make more enticing the size of the attack surface because the the uh, the attackers know that there's no way in hell you're going to have enough people to cover enough of those endpoints all at once, and they're just going to keep rolling the dice until they find that endpoint that no one's paying attention to because you don't have enough security staff hired to properly manage those resources. So yeah. sad outlooks, and and that leads into the last one. Uh, is that going to change? I mean, do you do we see? I mean, that's a need. That do we see that changing, or do do you think there's hope, or is it always going to kind of be the weakest link? You know, yeah, it's it's hacked, right? It's just yeah, whoever's I mean, the weakest. I see improvement in, I guess, the operational sense, right? So I think we're going to be able to mass produce operational security specialists, which could be a really important gap, right? So the people who can hit the right buttons and watch for the right threats. I think we're starting to get the answer there. I don't necessarily know, though, if we have the answer for like the very theoretical or kind of the, the forward thinking people who are supposed to be figuring out how to make this madness stop and how to make it so that there needs to be less people involved in the process. I don't know if we have enough of those people thinking about these types of problems. And so in some sense, we might be we might be satisfying short term goals, but the larger picture might be missing. Um, and, and I think that that is why the last key finding, which is that cyber espionage shows no sign of abating, makes sense, right? Because there's just all this opportunity for malicious things to be taking place and not enough talent yet to curb it in a meaningful way. So those are key findings. I'm going to turn it over to Jeremy to discuss the five trends part and how it pertains to what we've been talking about before. Oh, I think you muted, Jeremy. Unmute yourself. Sorry about that. It's no, uh, got, the keyboard. Yeah, no, it's it's. I'm gonna buy a new one. That when's your birthday? Uh, no, <laughs> what I what I have to do is I have to get the little rings to put in the keyboard to make it quieter. No, that way, Christian good. won't wake up bright and early with the clacking. My kids all love those mechanical Stotty. keyboards, so we're oh, we're used great. to hearing them here for sure. Yeah, Go ahead, Jeremy. All right. Yeah. So the I forget who put this out. So. This was one of your stories, I believe. Yeah, so that's good. All right. Yeah, so so it looks like um, there are a couple of key findings that they had, or, or not key findings. We're on trends now, right? So we're yeah. uh, looking for what's current, what's coming up in 2016, what we're looking out for. Uh, so the first thing is this idea of strategic data manipulation and distortion. And we talked about this a bit earlier with the whole idea of how can we verify that what we the data that we have is actually good data um, that it hasn't been manipulated or changed in some way that benefits um, a, a malicious attacker or what have you. Uh, so that was number one. Uh, number two here is the idea of increasing attacks on application service providers. So I think we talked a bit about this a bit with the idea of the these cloud-based services, right? So Google Drive. Uh, Dropbox, um, IBM Bluemix, right? These all provide cloud services for a large amount of people, um, Amazon Web Services, right? So these are all like uh, strategic, important 
services that are hosted on the internet by these big companies. Um, but it's a big worry um, that these services will go down, be taken out by whether whether it's DDoS or something else, um, these malicious attackers. Uh, another important thing is the idea of hacktivism. We saw this a bit uh, in the past few years. Uh, a great example would be the Sony, the, the whole Sony thing with um, the interview, I believe it was. Yeah, the interview. Um, so this idea of hacktivism, hacking for a cause, uh, trying to get your word out or your um, wh whatever it is that you're trying to strive for or make known to a large amount of people. Hacktivism is definitely a good way to express that, but um, it's a big concern with this growing attack surface of Internet of Things and what have you, um, where this idea of hacktivism is going. Uh, finally, we have the idea, or sorry, we have two more. Um, so industrial control systems being pushed to the breaking point. So this is a big concern uh, with like SCADA systems and what have you. Uh, we actually, the Cybersecurity Club at Maryland, two years back, I believe, we went to a Virginia Tech competition. Um, and one of the talks there was from a GE employee who walked us through hacking. It, it was this simulation of a dam. Um, so like critical infrastructure. And he walked us through how you would go from hacking into the company network all the way to pivoting into this uh, SCADA system that controlled the dam. Uh, and from there, you can kind of remotely control anything. You can change boiler rooms, open the floodgates, uh, so to speak. Um, so, so that was a very scary uh, talk, but it was also very enlightening to see how these systems are open and on the internet. And it really is a key concern and trend that we're definitely seeing. Jeremy, what's the benefit when we think of that type of service, right? What's the benefit to them having those systems open and available to the internet? Why can't we just, why can't that just be locked down? I mean, why do, why do they need to be exposed? Well, so security wasn't a huge concern back when these things were being developed. Um, I mean, SCADA didn't initially come with internet access, I don't believe. It was one of these things that people said later, oh, well, we want convenience. We want to be able to configure things remotely. Right. Yeah. Uh, Mark just put in the comments that technicians need remote access, right? So people need to get in and make changes if something's going wrong with, with the dam, right? People need that remote access. But it's a big concern because giving that access um, could, could really open the floodgates. But, cer but certainly yeah. in 2016, yeah, that's a good, sorry. I, yeah, I, I like walked that one. over the best pun of the night. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but certainly in 2016, those those through VPN access or secure VPN right. or something, whatever, sh that should be taken care of, where that even one. if the remote technicians come in, they that shouldn't be an issue. I hear that a lot in the industry. Uh, Mark comes from that space, and so he's very familiar with it. But as the average consumer, I'm kind of like, gosh, you'd think we'd be able to, lock, by now, lock that down so that it's not such a vulnerable attack surface. Right. Mark is raising some great comments in the chat here. So he's pointing out that operators want this information on their cell phone, right? So they want accessible, not just from the VPN, but from the internet. And that's that's definitely a big concern. And it's very scary to think about. Yeah. and I, And I imagine... It's that it goes back to that convenience versus security argument that we always have. We don't we don't know what the, the I'm sure there's a something that they're trying to do in there where you kind of go, oh, yeah, that would be really convenient and handy. I've got to do this all the time if I could just access it. And that opens up or creates a larger to use Christian's vernacular. It opens up <laughs> a larger attack surface. Right. I, right. It's really a great way of thinking about it. Right. When you, it, Is it the attack surface going to be large or is it going to be small? They're all going to be able to be attacked. It's right. just how, how large is that surface going to be? Yeah, it's a huge back and forth with the convenience idea. Definitely. Uh, so returning back to this article, the five trends. So just to sum up, we talked a bit about hacktivism, uh, increasing attacks on these cloud-based application service providers, uh, the data manipulation idea and integrity of data, 
Uh, we talked about SCADA and industrial control systems a bit. And then the last one is just a shakeout of the security industry, right? So we're really trying to set a dialogue and standards and get everyone on the same level, uh, especially in 2016. We want to start getting that to the level where we can all talk uh, on, on a level playing field about security and get that standardized um, and be able to have conversations with the government um, and be able to work together to make security better. Yeah, and and I think one of the um, big themes in everything that we've been talking about tonight, um, and this will appear in the show title because I find it so significant, <laughs> is that 2016 is very representative of this notion of Darwini Darwinism, essentially. But the era of Darwin cybersecurity is this notion that it's going to be a survival of the fittest for both developing the right tools and being the companies that stay on top, managing the financial costs of security and the profitability margins. And, and, you know, same for government and so forth and apply it how you will. But this idea that there is no culminating solution yet in security that mitigates these massive challenges. And so it's going to be kind of like a lot of horses at the at the gate racing all on the same track and whichever ones get trampled over and whichever ones make it to the finish line that's kind of how it's going to be both from a developer standpoint from a user standpoint from a corporate standpoint um and so i think in 2015 we saw an example of a lot of horses getting trampled down right we saw opm data breaches we saw voter data breaches we saw you know sony hacks i mean just the the sheer number and volume of users that were impacted in 2015 is staggering i mean it adds up easily over a billion people who use the internet have been impacted by a data breach in some way um and so we've seen horses that have been trampled we've seen some of the people who have um kind of persevered on and not had any of those nasty headline news. So there's people who are doing it right. And, and it's funny too, because the people who are smart about this stuff are the people you never, you, you hear about in the news, the people who failed, you, you don't nearly as often hear about the people who are succeeding. Um, you know, and I think one example is, you know, I don't often read, you know, obviously, at least in political or, or popular media, you don't read news sources about like, oh, AWS had a great year with the security in and all their users were really happy. No, that's not a sensational article. People are going to fall asleep. You know, the advertisers aren't going to make their money. But that's the thing, right? AWS, you never hear about a breach. Why? Because they're doing it right, the right way. They're making smart choices. Um, and so the internal tools that AWS has probably developed to achieve that is an example of Darwin is, you know, they are surviving in this very competitive environment. And so I think it's going to have to be kind of a competitive cutthroat, make it or break it way for the next, mm, arguably, at least five years until someone really figures out what is going to be the culminating way to stop the madness. And I think until someone comes up with that answer, the industry will continue to be inflated in both kind of cash resources and not enough people to take advantage of it to try and stop this for the, for the masses. So the era of Darwin security is upon us, and that is the year of 2016. Christian, when you say that, it brings up two two thoughts for me. One is when you compare when you use a Darwinian example in that or or a, a term, I begin to think of the cybersecurity landscape more as an organism than I do as a structure, right? And so it gets sick. It has areas of vulnerability. It has a soft underbelly. It's got it, you know, in that the the organisms that continue to survive are be the ones that will transmit their security DNA to the next down to the next generation. And that should that should help make it stronger. But there you almost need the weaknesses to make the you know to make the other parts of the organism better or to yeah. make it to more fit. So in, instead of trying to say, well it should we should get rid of it across the board in the survival of the fittest, it you you, you lose people and that's that's what makes a stronger organism, right? I mean that's kind of what's driven evolution. Uh, for us. And so when you apply it to cybersecurity, it makes it a really weird Terminator like, you know, because you're like, man, this stuff is actually it, it almost grows and changes and molds like an organism. Jeremy, do you as I say that, does that change when you when you're inside? Did you did you sign up to be a part of an organism that right. has, you know, that it's where it's kind of survival of the fittest? 
Well, an important thing that a lot of people in the industry have been saying is that security, it's an attitude. It's a mindset. It's not so much a list of things that you do to make sure your systems are secure, but it's this idea of where do I see vulnerabilities? How can I mitigate those risks, right? And how can I make things better and more secure? So, so it's not necessarily this checklist that you can go through, but it's this idea of iteratively looking for changes and trying to fix those changes. And when bad things happen, being able to mitigate those um, and react to those uh, problems. Yeah. I think actually the key is in, and this is going to be a little borgish, but a, a little bit of adaptation. This the the organism that adapts the fastest is the ones because it's going to happen, right? Hacking. Right. Mike Mike Howard puts a great comment in chat. He says the problem with those of us in charge of critical data is that we have to win every single time, while the bad guys only need to win once. I mean the the house odds are stacked against the good guys, right? That's right. basically what it is. It's a game that's rigged for the bad guys. And so um, I, I think adaptation is the key to the term. How quickly can you adapt and adjust to an attack and be able to counter it and survive, you know, kind of survive the attack? And I think certainly when we think about our own health, the healthier we are as an organization or, or the healthier we, we are as an organism, when I do get attacked, you know, using a virus or, a, or bacteria, I can then I can fight it off better. But if I'm not in good shape, if I'm not healthy, and Jeremy, I think this is kind of what you're saying, if I'm not healthy, if I'm not practicing good, you know, good healthy skills, in this case, cybersecurity, I am I am going to be more vulnerable because I don't have any defenses uh, to kind of fight against that. So that's just really weird because it's the first time I've really thought of cybersecurity in the terms of a kind of a human organism. And it can be there's right. so many similarities between the two. Another observation I have is that um, I guess the healthier you are, the higher you're at risk for being a target. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, people are looking at AWS, and that's a huge high target, but they're a healthy organism, so to speak. Um, target, yeah. maybe less so, but like uh, it, it's interesting to see how these healthy companies, so to speak, are like higher targets, higher value targets than some of the ones that maybe don't practice. Security. Well, their data is more valuable, right? right. It, it's it's healthier. They have healthier components to them. That exactly if harvested could, could be very beneficial. And so that kind of, you know, if somebody whose data is open, you have no idea, even the hackers kind of go, I don't know if that data is any good or not. It's so, right. it's so open, uh, you know, we, we, we can't do anything with it. So, so no interesting stuff. Christian, anything else uh, you want to cover? We're kind of up on the hour, but uh, any, anything else you want to cover before we kind of wrap it? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a a good final observation is this idea that especially as weaker ones get weeded out, that obviously makes like higher visibility for people who aren't going to want to go, you know, they're not going to want to hack target twice, so to speak, as opposed to maybe going after a larger trove that hasn't been accessed yet. So I think that's a really excellent observation. Yeah. And it makes the, it makes the whole organism stronger, the survival of the fittest. I, it's an interesting way. And so... Yeah. Well, 2016 will be interesting, uh, you know, from from that standpoint. We always we go into each year with uh, kind of like, hey, what's going to happen this year? And uh, and as I look ahead at 2016, uh, interesting for you guys, certainly, as you make your way into senior years uh, yeah. in, in college. And, you know, we've we've kind of uh, Jeremy first time. Is this have we had you we had you on the roundtables uh, cyber frontiers? Have you joined us for others as well? Uh, yeah, I, I called in for the BitCamp one for a bit. I helped out okay. Christian with that. That was always interesting. But Jeremy, <laughs> good, to, good to have you on. Thanks for... Yeah, uh, it's always great for, to stop by. No, good, good to have you on. Of course, uh, Jeremy and Christian are roommates uh, uh, by day. And so I think they've been roommates <laughs> from the very beginning, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. you guys somehow finagled that. I, Jeremy, why do you put up with him? I don't know. It, it gets harder every day. <laughs> You probably don't ever see each other. I would imagine is the is the case uh, a lot of time. Maybe just a night, and maybe not even then because you're both so busy and uh, yeah. and things are. Well, we'll look forward to seeing you both, Christian. Any uh, when when does uh, Maryland kick back up again? What's uh, when do you guys have to be back on campus? Uh, not to like the last week of January. I don't oh, think. nice! January twenty fifth. Yeah, I wish I had a break like that. I'm not gonna yeah. lie. It's I a nice break. That's what you need. It's called vacation. It's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. 
when you work in the corporate world, it's called vacation. And I, I need a little bit more of that uh, and a little bit less maybe of working. I thought this would be an easy week and it just has not turned out to be that way. It, it, you, you think, oh yeah, the weekend between Christmas and New Year's is supposed to be super easy. No. So it's, uh, it's, it's always one of those. If you, uh, so if you're listening to the recorded version or live, we want to welcome you back to Cyber Frontiers. And uh, Christian, how, how are we going to, in the spring, how are we going to keep, well, you don't have compilers, right? So True. we should be able to kind of keep up. <laughs> yeah. keep up. I always say this is the uh, twice a month podcast that we do every six months. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so no, actually, yeah. that's the longest break we've taken, to be honest. I think we'd gone two or three months before that. But Actually, next semester would be really cool because Jeremy and I will be both taking a 400-level course on uh, computer network security. So it should be an oh, interesting nice. time. Nice. Well, when we when we thought this concept of a podcast up, the the intent was always to take what you guys are learning and just bring it on the podcast. We thought it was a a great way to expose that, and it's gotten a real loyal following from that. So if you're listening to this again and wondering, and we'll have to do a big advertising, hey, we're back, you know, because it's <laughs> probably shut off on some people's um, on some people's podcatchers. But uh, if you made it all the way to the end and you're one of those loyal cyber frontiers listeners we want to say thanks for listening to us just a couple reminders and we'll stay around for a little bit of post show so if you're listening live hang out we'll take your questions there um as well don't forget to use the amazon affiliate link or the amazon tech scholarship fund here at theaverageguy.tv we buy those components uh, ship them out they get reviewed uh, those people get to keep them you can use that amazon affiliate link that's just theaverageguy.tv slash amazon subscribe to everything that we do over here at uh, theaverageguy.tv including Home Gadget Geeks and Home Tech Tips. You can find those all at the AverageGuy.tv slash subscribe. I want to thank Mediafire for hosting all the large and small video. I know Christian wanted to host that in the very beginning, but I wanted to try Mediafire out. So we thank those guys. You could host that, no problem, right? Video, oh, yeah. no problem, right? Christian, no problem. No problem. Audio, no problem. And of course, the AverageGuy.tv is powered by Maple Grove Partners Web Hosting. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from... Uh, from Maple Grove Partners. Christian, you still owe me a banner, right? Maybe you'll That's get true. a banner I could put on the site. It's, it's on my list for things to do with all this <laughs> massive amount of time. <laughs> I know. Are you busier when you get home from break than you are when you're in school? Um, you get pretty busy. I mean, you got to yeah. maintain Maple Grove Partners. And... Although this has been like fascinatingly the first like break I remembered a long time where I have consistently had 10 hour nights nice. sleep rest <laughs> for like the last seven days. And it's actually a problem that needs to stop. Yeah. It's going to stop tomorrow. Um, yeah, that's but, good though. You guys got to catch up. You got to get healthy. Jeremy, I'm sure yeah. you catch up on your sleep too, right? Yeah, for sure. When you get home. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I want those breaks. I'm going back to school. That's it. Going back to school and uh, I'm going to, I want a winter break. You don't have to worry about it. I want to thank you listening to, uh, to Cyber Frontiers. I would say we're out here regularly, but we're not. If you want if you enjoyed the show, uh, we ask you to share it. It'd be a great way to, to let it go. And uh, watch, uh, watch things. You want to, might want to watch my Twitter account. That's really the best way to know when the next Cyber Frontiers at Jay Collison will get you there. We'll be back uh, here with the next one whenever Christian and I get one of those put together. And with that, we'll say good night, everybody. Good night.